in John 7 this morning. My plan originally this week was to just plow through the rest of John 7. And um, I, I was grateful to be able to bounce things off my wife. And she, you can blame her if we're in the book of John for the next two years. Because she assured me it's not a problem to take our time. And because um, I was like, man, you know, just verses 25 through 36 here is, is enough. And uh, so with her encouragement, I, I decided that we'd hover there for today, verses 25 through 36 of John 7. So let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, I know I need your help this morning to communicate your truth and to do it in a way that is accompanied by your Holy Spirit and is able to make a difference in our lives. Lord, it's your word that will not return void, not my words. And in order for us to be changed and to be molded and to, to grow, I pray, Lord, that you would hammer home your words to us this morning. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for the opportunity to grow through it. And we just pray, Lord, that you bless this time in it this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still looking in chapter 7 at what it means here to be thirsting for Jesus as we learn about it here in this chapter. When I was a kid, to get a, um, to have a pop was a real special thing. Um, you've, you maybe have said that to your kids at some point or your grandkids. Um, but you know, one thing that's interesting, as I was, as I was looking at this and writing, um, I thought, is it called pop here? I think. Where I grew up, it was Coke. You know, the waitress would say, do you want a Coke? And you'd say, yes. She'd say, what kind? Sprite? Dr. Pepper? Root beer? It's just all Coke. Okay, so as a kid, to get a Coke um, uh, was real special. And sometime during first or second grade, I can remember that we had special reading days each week, or not a, a reading hour or two. And as a part of that, we could bring in 50 cents, and we could go up to the Coke machine um, at the school, and we could get a Coke, and I would get a Coke, which was a Dr. Pepper. And that's Tennessee language for you. So I would always get a Dr. Pepper. And... Um, and remembering back on that, I don't know if it was the fact that I just loved the taste of the Dr. Pepper so much or if I just hated reading so much that I just wanted to make this Dr. Pepper last. And so it came in a bottle about that tall, which you pop the cap off at the pop machine 
um, that had the, the um, bottle opener in it. And so what I would do is I would put my mouth just over the entire opening of the bottle and I would swig it up and swig it down and let all the Dr. Pepper like run back into the bottle just to kind of get a taste of it and make it last. And looking back on that, I realized, you know, after probably 10 minutes, I was just drinking a bottle of backwash. <laughs> and I'm like, ugh. I think if one of my kids ever drank my pop that way, I'd be like, you can have it. Just take it. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Pepper was special for me at that time because water was not. Okay, we had a water fountain in our classroom. We had a or, or a water uh, sink in our classroom and a water fountain out in the hallway. Water was plentiful. But for the children of Israel, as they wandered in the wilderness just after their exodus from Egypt, water was anything but plentiful. Water was special. Water was necessary. It was vital, of course, but God had to do miraculous things in order to provide them with water during their 40-year journey through the wilderness. He made water um, flow from a rock more than once. He, at one point, there was, you would recall, there was a watering hole that very large enough to water three million people and all their animals that was bitter or and, and was undrinkable, and, and God provided for them by making it sweet and drinkable again. And a major function of the Jews' Feast of Feasts, as they called it, or the Feast of Booths, later and, and carried on through Jesus' time, was celebrating God's provision of water for his children as they traveled and lived in booths or tabernacles through the wilderness. So as we've said and read about in verses 37 through 39 in chapter 7, which are kind of the, the pinnacle verses that we've talked about in this chapter, it was significant as a part of this feast that it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, Jesus was promising that he could provide a relationship with God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And this relationship would be the person's provision through the desert of this world that has turned away from its creator. We've looked back at the days leading up to this proclamation that Jesus made at the Feast of Booths, and we've observed three ways in which a person can have their thirst obscured. And we looked at how thir our thirst for, for Jesus can be obscured by unbelief or by fear or by religion, settling for religion, if you will. 
The end result for each of these is that they, the person that is satisfied or, or having their thirst obscured by these things is that they don't recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the provision for their thirst for a relationship with God. They don't realize that he's the source of a relationship with God that can be a fountain of living water. But Jesus is not sitting back shaking his head, saying to his disciples, these people are just so dense. I appreciate Jesus' warning throughout this chapter that those he was interacting with were on the wrong trail. He warned them that they rejected him because their wills were in opposition to God's will. As he says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. He's warned them that they are not judging rightly by clinging to their religion rather than to God's grace. In verse 24, he told them, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So today we're going to see one sad scene after another. These scenes involve people pushing God's salvation away, pushing away God's grace as they settled for something far short of him. And the big idea that we're getting across this morning is that without his grace, the unwilling heart pushes God's salvation away. Without his grace, the unwilling heart pushes God's salvation away. We'll look at four interactions with Christ this morning over the course of verses 24 through 35 or 36. Now, as I said, we're learning about these four interactions with Christ over the course of the days of the Feast of Booths. In these interactions, we're going to observe sad representations of people's judgments of Christ. But we'll also see with each interaction what they are missing about God as revealed in Jesus. These interactions still take place leading up to Jesus' big proclamation about being the solution to our thirst. And I think we'll see in these moments chosen by John to record how Jesus' heart must have gone out to these people when he was offering himself as their solution to their universal thirst for God. So we pick up, start in verses, verse 25 here. And it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I know from him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. 
Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The first of these sad interactions we see and find confusion versus the knowledge of God. We see this in, in verses 25 through 29, and this opens with, our understanding that some of the people of Jerusalem are speaking here. And what they say is they say, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing about him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, this idea of who is speaking here is significant for these verses. They're called the people of Jerusalem. This is actually a specific Greek term, and I practice this here. It's a Jerusalemitai. This and only one other place in the New Testament is this term used. It's a specific people group, Jews living in Jerusalem. The last time these people would have seen Jesus there would have been in chapter 5 where it's described and it was a big brouhaha if you remember. It's centered around the fact that he healed a man on the Sabbath. And these people would be more inclined to to believe the statements of the Jewish leaders regarding Jesus. They're less exposed to the miracles that took place around Galilee so far. They're less likely to believe the testimonies of the people of of the area of Galilee. They looked down on them, quite frankly. Sadly, these people would have considered themselves to be more knowledgeable Jews. Uh, They would have been closer to the temple, closer to the Sanhedrin, closer to the scribes and the teachers, and closer to many of the rabbis that would be associated with the Sanhedrin. But their knowledge amounts only to be confusion. We're not told that all the crowd represented in our passage this morning throughout verse 36 are these people of Jerusalem. So, so it's just mentioned here at these verses that we're looking at at this point. But John does make sure that we know that they're involved, especially in this first interaction. Sadly, the people of Jerusalem were looking to others' opinions in order to understand Christ. They mention the fact that the religious leaders are seeking to kill Jesus as kind of a sort of offhand comment. Their question with the whole matter has more to do with whether these same leaders have changed their opinion about him. There's definitely an overactive sensitivity to what the Jewish leader's position was 
on this man. It's, it's almost like they're asking, is it time for us to believe differently now? You know, has anybody gotten, has the edict come down? You know, has there been a proclamation? Change your opinion about this man. Their statement about the origin of Jesus reveals even more that their confusion hinges on the political whims of those in power. You see, the statement here where they say, but we know where this man comes from, and where the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This statement that they make about the origin and identity of the Messiah was not biblical, but rabbinical. This means that it's sim- it was simply a common teaching of one or more of the, the Jerusalem sages. And they were concerned that their opinions matched that of the religious leaders and the popular teachers. And then we read that it says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This term proclaimed means that Jesus cried out as a public proclamation over the crowd of Jews, specifically these living in Jerusalem. He uses their discussion after over the earthly and geographic origin of their Messiah, and he draws them to his spiritual origins that they don't seem concerned about. John returns again and again to this theme of Jesus being on a journey mission throughout his gospel. He began in chapter 1 speaking about Jesus as being the word who came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And we'll read in chapter 10 about how he is the good shepherd who's there to gather up his father's sheep. And he describes his father's sheep as being those who recognize his voice. Here Jesus is humbly referring to himself as being sent on mission by God the Father. Those who don't recognize him as the Christ simply don't know his father who sent him. Jesus confronts the fact that with all of their knowledge, they've missed who is the most important person to know. To know God is to know the truth and to be able to recognize his solution. I heard a story once about a well pump that was in the middle of a desert. Attached to this well was a canteen full of water And a sign. And the sign read something like this. It said, Welcome, weary traveler. You are likely very thirsty, and this well can quench your thirst. In this canteen, you will find enough water to prime the pump. But that is what you must use it for. Trust that it will do the job, and you will have all the water you could want. Just remember to fill the canteen. For the next traveler. The person who would run across this well would have a choice. Were they going to trust and obey what the sign said, or would they drink the water in the canteen in disbelief and to the detriment of those 
who would follow them. What we see today in people's interactions with the gospel or with theology, which should be one and the same, is a stopping short. It's a guzzling down of some religious tidbit that satisfies their curiosity rather than investigating fully. You might have a friend or a loved one that's satisfied with some secular explanation of the resurrection that they read on the internet. You're like, well, it's good enough for me. Or, or for someone else, it might be that they have known many religious hypocrites and, and that, that's enough to turn them away. Just watch um, Ray Comfort's video, Religion, um, Evolution versus God. You'll find person after person admitting that they're putting their faith in someone else's idea, but yet they've seen no evidence for it themselves. They've just taken a drink and they're like, that's good enough. They're settling for sound bites of confusion rather than the thirst-quenching knowledge of who God is. Others might consider themselves a, a good religious person because come Easter and Christmas, you can be sure that you'll find them at church where they should be. This can be a sad state in the church as well. This idea of just settling for something. If we're satisfied with one certain teacher or devotional, we can, we can sacrifice really knowing and experiencing God because we just wanted to check off the box of getting our devotional thought for the day. We're meant to be driven by a desire to know God and not stop until we're satisfied. We're meant to grow in being able to recognize where he's at work and how he works. Next time you find yourself saying, well, it's, it's a mystery, I guess. Or who really knows the truth about that when it comes to the scriptures? Make sure that you're not stopping short of studying what God has truly said and settling for confusion. There's a whole world of understanding and knowing God that is available to us in the scriptures. I or, or many more mature people here in this congregation would be happy to help you to understand how to study the scriptures for yourself, how to dig into them, how to not stop short. I think if you sat down with me through a week of of studying the scriptures, you'd probably look and say, this really isn't that hard. And I'm not saying I come out with the authoritative answer on everything, but I'm always amazed at what was there that I didn't know was there before studying it. And I'm not talking about some deeper spiritual truth that's behind, you know, the words. I'm just talking about asking good questions, getting rid of our assumptions, and allowing the word to speak for what it's meant to say. So we're moving ahead here into verse 30. Here in verse 30, we find aggression versus the timing of God. 
It says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Here we simply notice the fact that the perfectly timed plan of God was going to be carried out. No amount of fury or momentum was going to change that. The perfect timing of God, despite the plans and efforts of men, is another theme of John's gospel. And if you read what the ESV study Bible notes has to say, it says, because his hour had not yet come, shows Jesus' strong awareness of God's providential direction of the circumstances of his life. His enemies could not capture or harm him until the hour of his arrest, crucifixion, and death as ordained by God. God the Father would not allow these things to happen until the earthly ministry of Jesus, God the Son, was complete. After Jesus is arrested, While on trial, he makes this statement. It can be a little bit confusing because rather than saying, calling it my hour, he calls it your hour to the people that were that were trying him. In Luke twenty two, fifty three, he says, It says, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. And I want you to see this was in spite of their desire to do so. He says, You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. And the power of darkness. I read a little bit recently about the Polish underground resistance that fought against the Soviet forces after World War II. These men and women sought to bring back the rightful government of the nation of Poland. And typically, an underground resistance could build up enough momentum that they could could kind of turn the population against the unrightful rulers, but this was different. It says between 1944 and 1963, so just under 20 years, it's been established that over 5,000 death sentences against individual soldiers of the democratic underground were carried out, this being in Poland. An estimated 21,000 others perished in communist jails and concentration camps. At least 10,000 others died during direct combat engagements against communist forces. This Polish underground resistance is looked back on and called the doomed underground or the cursed soldiers. It's because no amount of opposition was going to stop the aggression of the Soviet Union's control over Poland. You know, for us, it's hard to sit back and watch those in power seem to try to squelch all that has made us special as a nation. Our culture seems determined to run headlong into evil and in a disregard of God, and we know it will mean our destruction as a nation. It's hard for us to watch those in academia or Bill Nye shake their heads and smirk when they're presented with creation as a legitimate argument for our existence. But we are not a doomed underground. We are not a doomed underground. We serve the Lord of Lords who is working according to his timetable. 
we're told, and if you'll turn to 2 Peter 3, 4. Just after James and after 1 Peter. We're told here that we'll be mocked for looking toward the sky for Jesus' return. It says in verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We're told that days would be like this. If you turn to Revelation, the, ver- the last verses of the Bible, the final words of God's revelation of his word to us, are these, in verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, so this being John, I'm sorry, this being Christ. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And John writes, amen. Come Lord Jesus. And for us until then, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We are not a doomed resistance. We live in the last days in the same sense as World War II had last days. Allied forces spent years in the Japanese islands conquering outposts of soldiers who were determined to fight to the death. And these years took place after peace was secured with Japan's surrender. Still, they are known as the last days of World War II. And so are these that we live in. With the victory of the cross and the resurrection secured, we are simply mopping up and waiting for his timing. But most importantly, we are to be on gospel mission in hopes that he will save more before returning and in hopes that we will experience living out what the gospel means in these days. We move into verses 31 and 32, and we see protection versus the the purposes of God. It says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering, these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Notice the same crowd are developing, I'm sorry, notice some in the crowd are developing a faith based on the signs that Jesus had performed. This is a weaker faith, as we find talked about at the end of chapter 2. But they are on their way to recognizing what John has made the purpose of his writing the gospel, and that is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. And this is the purpose of God, that he might bring to himself a people that are called out to be his own. This is what the Greek term for church means, the term ekklesia, ek meaning out of, and lesia being derived from the term for to call, that God calls his church those who I have called out 
from among the many. Also, we're not told what days these interactions were happening on. It's likely that this instance are picked out by John among many conversations in order to prove his point. And I believe that the point he's trying to make is just how hostile the environment was for Christ. This group of people that's speaking here may be the Jews and from the rest of Judea and from Galilee ringing in. They would have made the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. As I mentioned, they had seen more of Jesus' signs up and around Galilee. The Pharisees' reaction is one of fear and protectionism. The crowd is muttering or grumbling, if you will, probably in the direction of the Jewish leader's position on Jesus. And also what's interesting to note here is the, this group that decides to send officers to arrest Jesus, it's made up of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now the chief priests would, um, is a group, comes from the group known as the Sadducees, and the Sadducees share, shared power in the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees. These two groups were like the Republicans and Democrats, and they loved each other even less. What we're seeing here is bipartisan action. And just as with today, we only see this happen when the two groups are afraid of something more than they are of each other. They unite in bipartisan effort to protect themselves by seeking to have Jesus arrested. And in the chapters that, that follow, we'll watch the battle lines of belief being drawn and we'll see the protectionism of the religious leaders grow despite the obvious signs that Jesus is their Messiah. One culminating point is the day of Jesus' triumphal entry on the very day predicted in Daniel's 70 weeks. And the people are celebrating their Messiah's arrival, but the religious leaders will be saying to each other, what are we going to do about this guy? As we see the political winds shifting today, so that somehow any mention of Christ must be removed from the state. Let's remember that Jesus also stood and taught while political winds were being wept up. We can take comfort in this fact that God moves in a person's life, and when he does, they can't be protected. When he calls them out to be his child, there's no defense against it. Many of you have this in your testimony. Don't you want to be a person who's shared the good news with that person? I've heard that it takes an average of seven times of hearing the gospel before a person typically responds. Don't you want to be able to celebrate the rebirth of a friend or family member or neighbor? You know, as we, as we read about in our small groups from the book, What is the Gospel? It's as simple as trying to work in the truth that no defense can stand against if God is calling that person out. The fact that God has created us to live in relationship with him 
but that our sins, the things that we do think or say that fall short of his standard of holiness, they have separated us from him. But, but Jesus took those, the penalty of those sins on himself in his death and his resurrection and has made it so that if a person will simply accept his righteousness to credit on their part, to span the gap between them and their creator, that they can have a relationship with God that they were intended to have. And we simply have plenty of opportunity to work those truths into our relationships and to be on gospel mission. Well, this brings us to assumption versus the availability of God that we see in verses 33 through 36. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. These are some of the saddest statements made in these verses. Jesus is forewarning these people around him that he was, not, he was only going to be available to them for a short while. It would have been six months until his crucifixion, only 40 days after that until his ascension. Again, John refers to his mission journey that Jesus has been sent on by the Father. Of course, the Holy Spirit would be made available after that point of his ascension. After the day of Pentecost, many more would come to Christ. I wonder how many of them standing there would pray in the future to him after Pentecost and would say, Lord, you were right here where I could have touched you. I could have sat at your feet and listened to you and learned from you personally. And I treated you so poorly. Where we see the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I can... I am, you cannot come. These people's question that John chooses to highlight is one that shows their huge assumptions about their own righteousness. The dispersion would have been the communities of Jews that chose not to return from the exile from Babylon and, and they would have moved out from the, from the area of Babylon in Old Testament times when the Jews were able to return. The Greeks are the term that the Jews used to describe the Gentiles or non-Jews. They simply called them Greeks because the Greek culture was the predominant culture among the Gentiles surrounding them at that time. They wondered if Jesus plans to go and live out among the Jews in order to teach the Gentiles. The assumption that's being made here is the Gentiles need Jesus' teaching, but we Jews do not. These very assumptions keep most of the people surrounding Jesus from reaching out for his salvation. In fact, when they ask the question, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? The bigger question is there is, what does he mean by saying, we're going to seek him? 
seek him. In their momentary opportunity to believe and learn from the very Messiah that they claimed to be waiting for was slipping by with each day that passed. It was their assuming that they were righteous enough that kept them from seeing Jesus as he really was. If he was a savior sent by God, he must have been sent for others because they didn't need one. A young uh, Greek statesman was instructing a, a man named Pericles on how to govern Athens. And Pericles was 40 years older than this proud young politician. Dismissing him, Pericles told the younger man, when I was your age, I talked just as you do now. In response, the proud upstart said to him, how I should have loved to known you then, Pericles, when you were at your best. The younger, less mature man thought that there was no improvement left to be made for him and certainly nothing between him and Pericles that he needed to pick up in the coming years. Many think that God is simply in the same way of thinking, I'm pretty good the way I am. They think that God is going to like weigh their good deeds against their bad deeds. I'm sure you've heard this as, as you've asked people. Maybe you've thought this or maybe you do think this. That God's going to weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds and he's going to see I'm all right. You know, and that's the reason why I should be able to be with him for eternity. This is not only a very proud and assuming statement that we need no improvement. It misses just how sinful we are. I heard a Puritan preacher say once that he never committed one righteous act for which he didn't need to repent. He never committed one righteous act for which he didn't need to repent. What he meant by that was the truth that even the things that we do that we consider righteous are tainted by our sinfulness. Just as Isaiah wrote that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, the person who thinks that their good deeds are going to simply outweigh their bad deeds are in for a big surprise. If this were to literally happen at God's judgment seat, they might find a huge scale, and on one side of the scale would be those few things that they did each day that they tried really hard to do that was good. And on the other side of the scale would be everything they ever did. Whether it be considered bad or whether they would have considered it righteous because it's tainted by their sinfulness. Assumption that we are good enough causes people to miss the availability of the gospel. Amidst the confusion, aggression, protection, and assumption of the people that Jesus was interacting with, God was at work for his glory and for our good. God worked according to his timing and his purposes, his gospel and his grace, and here we are today. 
And Jesus is still seeking to present himself to others through us. We shouldn't be surprised when people push salvation away. They've always done this. People have always said, you know, I think I'm all right. I'll take my chances. You know, I heard this, you know, and and this person that that I think knows a lot, they dismissed it all, so I'm good. I'm not going to worry about it. We should not steep, stop seeking to reach others with our words and with the lives that we walk out before them. We should be living wa- lives before people that when they see their hope, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, as we have set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, we're always ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you so much for walking out your life.